Hi folks, Jack Spirico here with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is Tuesday, June the 27th, 2012, and this is episode 931 of the Survival Podcast. And uh, today's going to be kind of a different show. I actually had a guest lined up yesterday, and we ended up having to put his interview off until tomorrow, so his interview will play Thursday. That means i got to do an extra standalone show today, and I was thinking when I was driving in, what are you going to do today, Jack? And then I started thinking about the way things have changed over the last four years when I tell people what I do and how people ask questions now instead of looking at me like I'm crazy. And I thought, what if I put together a list of the 15 questions that people that I meet in real life, face-to-face, the most common 15 questions that I'm asked and how I answer them? I thought that might be interesting to the audience. I thought it might be very helpful to new people. And I thought it actually actually might bring some really cool things up to help you talk to other people about prepping if you're you know what you'd call a seasoned prepper. I'm going to do that in just a minute. Before we do, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by supporting the show so that we can be here for you five days a week, Monday through Friday, for about an hour a day. Sponsor of the day number one today, Sawtooth Tactical, nestled up in the Sawtooth Wilderness of Idaho. That's why it's called Sawtooth Tactical, folks. It's up in the Sawtooth Wilderness. Veteran-owned, veteran-operated, and all the cool stuff you need to live that tactical lifestyle. From Magpul Magazines, SOE Tactical Gear, and everything you can think of in between. Check them out today, sawtoothtactical.com. Next up today, ready-made resources. Hey, what more can you ask for from a company than for them to say, our name is what we do, and then they do it. That's what ready-made resources does. All the resources you need, ready-made, ready to go, point, click, buy, order, sent directly to your house at great prices and great service. And I do mean all the resources you need for your preps. If you can think of something uh, that would help you get prepared and you go to ready-made resources, odds are you're going to find it there. Check them out today, readymaderesources.com. Remember, the best way to visit ready-made resources, Sawtooth Tactical, and all of our sponsors, go to the survivalpodcast.com. First, click on their banners in the right-hand margin, and you'll know you're dealing with the actual company that carries my personal endorsement. Uh, next up today, I want to throw a reminder out there. The Survival Podcast does have an internet forum. It's probably the best forum online about preparedness. Check it out today. Very well run. Good people that would like to meet you, and it'll actually help answer some of the questions that I am going to go over today, uh, sometimes in ways that maybe will work better for you, because part of what I'm going to tell you today is... Uh, not everything I say should be taken as gospel. Gospel. It's one man's opinion, one man's view, and the things that have worked for me and my, you know, some of my guiding tenets. One of them is my plan won't work for you. You have to take the information I give you and available elsewhere, and make your own plan. The forum can help you do that. So if you've never been on our forum, go by today. Just go to survivalpodcast.com. Click on forum. You'll find your way in there. Quick reminder, though, our form has rules. It's run like a constitutional republic. We have a terms of service. If you post something and a moderator tells you that's not allowed or it's in the wrong board or something like that, follow the rules. There's an old saying in the military, if you run from a sniper, you're just going to die tired. Well, if you argue with a moderator more than a few times about what the rules are supposed to be in a place where the rules have been already that way for four years, You'll just get banned and frustrated, so don't do that. Uh, if you go to my site, you can look under the uh, Welcome Center, and you will see that there's an article about getting along in the forum. 
that might be a good thing for you to read, not just for our forum, but for all forums. All forums have their own rules. They have their own culture. And it's a good idea when you go into a forum and you start posting things. That's great. People love to have your contributions. But you understand the people and the culture and the rules. It's just like going to a business mixer uh, or a PTA meeting or something like that. You wouldn't walk in and just start running your mouth about the way you think things should be done. You might take a little bit of time to get to know people and understand the lay of the land first and then uh, you know, work within the parameters of the group. That's just good advice for blogs, forums, all types of things online. It'll make you a happier person and you'll get better relationships out of it. Next up, remember, you can uh, support this show by joining the Member Support Brigade, 50 bucks a year. Yeah, it gets you discounts to 32 vendors. It gets you $150 worth of free ebooks. It gets you several benefits that alone pay for the entire cost of the membership uh, in and of themselves, and you'll be supporting the show at 18.3 cents an episode. Military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, and first responders, such as paramedics, if you email me before you join, I will send you a special discount code to thank you for your service. Uh, last but not least, remember, we are building up to episode 1,000. I need your calls. Uh, you get about three minutes to tell your story. Tell me uh, how the Survival Podcast has affected you, uh, how you've changed your life, the progress that you've made, the struggles that you've had, you name it. I want you to be part of it to get a feel for how shows like this go. Uh, look at the one-year anniversary show or episode 550. Either of those will help you. And uh, a real quick reminder in case you missed it, the Survival Podcast on June 20th, we just had our fourth year anniversary. And uh, we're not doing an anniversary show for the fourth year. We're doing this episode 1000 to celebrate that landmark. That'll happen within a couple months. Please be part of it. I currently do not have enough calls for uh, episode 1000. Anywhere near enough. They have not come in anywhere the speed that they did the last two times we did this. Those of you who partook in the other two shows we did like this, please don't feel uh, that you don't have anything to add, that you're making room for somebody else. There's going to be no such thing as too many calls for episode 1000. If it goes two and a half hours, it goes two and a half hours. If people listen to it for three days in a row, to get through it, fine. People need to hear that they're not alone. Please send them that message by telling them about your walk with preparedness and modern survivalism. All right, with that wrapped up, let's get into the uh, main topic today, which again is these 15 questions that I get all the time. And I usually don't get all 15 from one person, but if I meet a new person, they might even ask me some questions that I'm not going to go over today. But I guarantee you that everybody that I meet when they hear what I do they're going to ask when they start, if they're going to ask any questions at all. They're going to ask at least one or two of these. It's just very, very universal. Thought, so I thought it was a good subject. But before I get into the questions, I'd like to talk a little bit about how this is how this whole thing's you know changed over the years. In 2008, I was doing this show in my car, and I was doing it you know as a, as a second thing. I had a company that I owned and a, and, a, and, a, and a job to fulfill there, and partners I had to work with, and and all types of things going on like that, and. Uh, but when I would get into conversations with people, they'd say, well, what do you do? And we'd talk about internet marketing and all. And they go, well, what, what do you, you know, they, it would always come into like, well, what else do you do? And eventually I'd tell me, you know, well, actually I run a podcast and it's about, uh, preparedness and self-sufficiency and independence and things like that. And they'd go, oh, okay. And then usually they'd say, well, what's it called? And since I said the survival podcast, they'd look at me as though maybe a little foil was showing, uh, from underneath my hair. I had a, you know, under the, under the hair foil hat going on or something. And they'd kind of recoil from that. Very few people really seemed, you know, people that I'd just met anyway, uh, to take an interest in that. Uh, the m biggest interest they would take would be along the lines of what's a podcast? And how the hell do you make money doing that? But they were business questions. They weren't preparedness questions. Today, 
when I talked to people. And when we, you know, we started spending a lot more time in Arkansas, I thought maybe it was just the rural environment and things like that. But it doesn't matter where I go or what I'm doing. I can be at a baseball game and meet somebody through a friend. I can, you know, uh, just meet somebody, you know, if we're looking for real estate or something. And it, when the question comes up and I tell them what I do, today is way different than 2008. Today, people are really, really interested in this. And I get a lot of people that say, well, that's a great business right now. And what I always have to point out to them is not when I started, it wasn't. Not when I started, it wasn't. Because I want them to understand that what we do here is different. It's different than what all of these kind of fly-by-night you know, drive-by media types are doing now. The, the stuff that Nat Geo is doing and Discovery is doing and maybe Spike might be doing. And they're, they're, Spike's in touch with me right now about acting as a judge for one of their shows. And I, I might do it, I might not, I don't know. But I even told the guy when I replied to his email, here's my number, you can call me anytime. But i got to tell you, I'm not real big on these shows because I feel like they portray people in a very, very negative way. That, that people need to be thinking about this much more practically. So I might be a contrarian judge or something like that. I, I don't know if that'll work. But my point is that we've been doing this for a lot longer than since it's been cool. And that when, when I set the show up and I started doing the show, it wasn't designed to fill a hot niche. It was designed to fill a void that I saw in America, which was we had lost our culture of preparedness. That the nation used to be a nation of people who could do things, who could look after themselves, who cared about their neighbors, who knew their neighbors, and they were prepared to deal with whatever came their way. And I grew up in that culture. And then when I, you know, kind of left that rural town and went into the city and saw that it was gone, I thought, well, that's just because I'm in the city. And then, you know, you know, ten years later, you go home and you realize even where you came from that other than some of the old-timers, that a lot of it's gone there, too. It's just gone everywhere. And when I decided I was going to start doing a podcast, there were a lot of things on my mind about the economy and, and, and what have you. And I wanted to help people, but I saw my main mission is to help people get back to a point where they can take care of themselves, take care of their families, and not be harmed by a system that's become very, very predatory. And... I believe that our show would be, and I call it our show, guys, because it's not my show, it's our show. You're part of it. That our show would be just as successful today as it is, even if all of this hype around 2012, doomsday this, doomsday that, it never happened. Because the majority of the people listening to this show are not big on that kind of hype. They've just realized that they're exposed and they want to fix that problem. So I don't spend that much time explaining this, but you guys are, are, are part of my community, and I want you guys to understand that, especially this will be a great show for new people. So it's very possible that you've never heard a show before and that you're listening to this show today because somebody sent it to you. And if that's the case, and this is the first time you're hearing my voice or one of the first few times you're hearing my voice even, then I want you to understand that what we do here. It's not about being prepared for the end of the world as we know it in the way that you've probably heard it before. It's about preparing to deal with the end of the world as you might know it on any given day. It could be because you've lost a job or a family member. It could be because you've had a bad investment go awry. It could be a million different things. It could be because a tree fell on your house. It could be a bigger disaster that's affecting a lot more people than just you, or it could be a disaster in your world. And either way, 
There's been a massive shift when that happens, and you have to deal with the shift. And the people that set their lives up in a resilient manner are able to cope with shifts, deal with them, and many times come out of those shifts better off than they went in. So think about that today. Even if you've listened before and you're not a news person, um, think about that as I go through these questions and how so, a lot of people in the industry might answer them very, very differently. So you can understand why I'm answering them that way. And for those that might be new and thinking, you know, how how well you know how well does this stuff work? About forty five thousand people a day listen to this show now. I'd love for new people to to make that number higher. But you don't build something to that size, starting as meager as we did here, unless what you're doing works. And I get countless emails from people that have said, I've put these principles into play and my life's better. And that's the big thing. Everything we do here is designed to make your life better. Yes, it's designed to hold you up in an emergency or a disaster, but if they don't come, it's designed to improve your life. Please think about that as I go through this. Well, with all of the hype, one of the questions that I get is what's the biggest thing that we have to be afraid of? And they mean nationally or globally. What's what's the biggest thing that you personally are afraid could send the whole country into disarray? And I always have two answers, and then those two answers always lead to a single answer. And the answer is an economic collapse of some sort or a pandemic. And if we have a pandemic, a serious pandemic, not this swine flu crap they had a couple years ago where every congressman told you to sneeze in your sleeve, right? not that nonsense, a real serious pandemic with serious contagion rates and serious lethality, and even the people that it doesn't kill are really, really sick for a, for a while before they get better and they're taken out of commission and people are afraid to go out of their doors. If we have that, you're going to get an economic collapse to go with it. I mean, the two are inseparable. You cannot have a global pandemic today without having a global economic collapse to go along with it. So my biggest concern is, a, is, a, is an economic collapse. Uh, I, I base that on very, very simple things like I understand math. And I can look at $15 trillion worth of debt, and I can watch the debt continue to go up, and I can know it's going to soon be 16. And before we know it, before you blink, it's going to be $20 trillion. And at some point, that system has to break. I, I, I look at that, and I understand the monetary system. And usually with a new person, I don't go deep into the monetary system unless I have a lot of time to be able to really explain it. And it takes about 20 minutes because everything that you've been taught about money is not true unless you actually know the truth, and very few people do. Very few people with economics degrees really understand how fractional reserve banking and how our monetary system that we have today works. Very few people understand why saying it's fiat is only half the story and only half the truth. It's actually much worse than a straight fiat currency. If you want to know more about that, you can read a book called The Real Truth About Money. You can find that at trtam.com. It's completely free. I wrote it. It's still in a beta version. I am writing more chapters for it as we speak, specifically showing how a gold or silver standard or a trimetallic standard could work. Because when I wrote the book, I did not really cover that. And I, a lot of people took one of the solutions I presented it to mean that I'm against gold and silver as money, which I'm not. The hope of that book was that people would understand the problem and begin to build actual solutions and ideas and have an honest dialogue about money. But economic collapse, biggest concern that I have. And I think that it leads to a lot of other huge problems. And we can look at Greece, we can look at Argentina, we can look at the former Soviet Union, and we can see... Uh, many things that we would expect to happen 
many commonalities and a lot of differences. And some of the differences we would have in this country is this is an armed society, and that's good and bad. It's good because we have people that can look after themselves because they're armed, and it's bad because criminals can get guns easily. And that doesn't mean in any way that I think we should restrict firearms ownership, but I think we should understand what it means. The reality is, and, and my guest who I'm holding off, I'm not going to tell you guys who it is. You'll get a surprise on Thursday morning when you find out who it is. I think you'll really like this guest. But our guest that's um, going to be on the Thursday show has been through some of the worst things that have ever happened in modern times and has seen the biggest breakdown of society to happen in modern times. And it was far more than economics that was going on. This, this guy lived through a war zone. Some of you will know now who that person is. Some of you won't. You'll find out Thursday if you don't know. Um, but I can tell you right now that many of the things that we see going on uh, in Argentina and Greece were a lot worse where this guy was. And the very first thing that began to happen was gangs formed. And people joined gangs because they had no alternative. Many people joined gangs simply because they had no way to defend themselves. Many because they had no food. And by joining a gang, you could get food and you could get ways to defend yourself. Uh, the gangs would go steal weapons from other people and then they would distribute the weapons among their gangs. In this country, we have well-armed gangs already. The big deal, though, was the organization. See, when people got organized, they had power. And the gangs in this country are already very, very well organized. Very well organized. And in a society that breaks down, they're going to be a huge threat. It probably won't be like the TV tells you in a Mad Max type uh, world, but it will be probably far worse than most people are willing to admit. So the economy is a huge thing, and, and that's my biggest concern. And I think we have to prepare for it as though it was any other event, though. We can't prepare for an economic collapse. We have to prepare for dealing without systems of support, needing to defend ourselves, uh, needing to have some ability to continue on with commerce. So gold and silver play a role in that. Smart financial uh, management plays a role in that. Low debt load pays the place. You know, this is stuff that I could just go on this one thing and do three shows. So I'm going to shorten it there. But that's how I basically answer the question that it's the economy or a pandemic. And of course, a pandemic would lead to uh, in an economic collapse as well, or at least a huge recession or depression. Now here's another one I'm hearing a lot lately because times are tough economically. How can I afford to get prepared when I can when I can barely get by already? In other words, all this stuff that I hear about, how can I be prepared? How can I how can I put stuff back when I can't stay afloat? And the answer sometimes is, well, maybe maybe you're not ready to start preparing yet, but you need to get to where you're ready to start preparing because the reality is the person that feels that way is going to be the one that's hit the hardest uh, in, a, in a, any type of a disaster because they're already living in the middle of their own disaster. I mean, I look at it this way. Um, being kicked in the knee hurts, and no one wants to be kicked in the knee. But if you've already dislocated your knee and I kick you in the knee, it's, it's, it's worse, right? And that's how a lot of these people living on an economic knife edge are. And, and my response to those people is always, you probably have more tools than you think you do when it comes to reorganizing your life. And in many instances, these people are in desperate need of an economic overhaul regardless of being prepared or not. They need to look at cutting all the expenses they can out of their lives. They maybe need to look at making some very drastic, hard choices until they can stabilize themselves economically. 
But if it's the case that it's just poor management or misunderstanding, what I try to tell people is, well, we can do very, very simple things and get relatively quickly prepared fast. First of all, one of the biggest things that we can do that costs us no money at all is to simply inventory everything that we have and make a list of all of our weaknesses. There's no cost to that. When you start making a list of your weaknesses, generally you'll figure out a lot of them need some sort of a thing to prop them up that you might have to buy or barter for or trade for or something like that. But we can do that smart and low cost and we don't have to have, you know, the highest end gear to, to pull that off. But also a lot of times you'll figure out there's a lot of stuff that you already have access to for free that just needs to be repurposed. So all of a sudden you're like, well, if the lights go out and you realize there's five or six flashlights laying around the house. You realize that it would be great to have a really good tactical light, and I think you should. But that you can also go down to like the thrift store and buy flashlights with batteries in them now with LEDs for like two bucks. And then maybe you can put a, you know one of those in every drawer, and at least you can see your way around the house when the lights go off, and that's a step in the right direction. So an assessment is free, and it, it's it's a big step for people though because it starts to expose your vulnerabilities. You know, turn all the lights off in the house, turn off the TV, don't go shut the power box off or anything like that, but just pretend everything's off. At least you'll be comfortable, warm or cool, depending on the season, because uh, your climate control is working. But shut everything off and just think to yourself, if I couldn't leave for the next week, what would I do? And run that little thought experiment, and you'll start to realize you have a lot of things, because what really hurts people in disasters is panic. Many times people have everything they need to get by, but they fail to get by because of panic. So mentally addressing the situation first is one of the biggest things that you can do. And then when it comes to things like food storage, just get really practical about it. Just when you go to the store and you buy something all the time and you usually buy one, you know, buy two. And, and buy two of that one thing until you have, you know, six or 12 of them. And then move on to something else. And just build up some depth to your pantry. Get yourself to a point where maybe you would be kind of bored with what you're eating, but at least it's stuff you like to eat, and you could get by for 30 days. That's going to get you through most things. I will get to the food question in a bit, and I think it should be more. But that's a very low-cost way because, generally speaking, the items that we buy individually are a dollar, two dollars, three dollars, four dollars, something like that. And we can add one of those a week, and we can usually still get by. Maybe we have to give up a latte or something, you know. Now there are people, like I said, they're on the economic knife edge you know you, you tell somebody we'll cut back a latte a week and this guy goes dude i don't even drink coffee at home because i can't afford folgers now that guy like i said they're that those people are in need of an economic overhaul they generally have too 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 short of an income too little of an income and, and too much expense and they need to address both sides of that and i know that it's like you listen to that you say well it's easier said than done but there's people that make you know two thousand dollars a month delivering pizzas part-time And most people on that economic knife edge, if, if, if they actually earn, they, not if you gave it to them, you give it to them, they'll blow it. But if they earn an extra thousand bucks a month, half of what you could earn, they can get off that knife edge. And I think that's very, very important. And again, it's about a culture of preparedness. It's not about being a big badass survivalist and having enough money to go out and buy a bunker and, you know, the, the most expensive weapons and gear and a four-wheeler and a trailer and go hide off in the woods or whatever. It's, it's about just being basically prepared to deal with life. You got to get off that economic knife edge if you're on there. And until you do that, the other stuff that's more advanced than the stuff I've just talked about is probably out of your range. You're probably right. But you can assess your situation. You can make a plan. You can know where you would go. You can make an agreement with another family member. Any, you can make a documentation package. You know, that costs the printer ink. 
Uh, it's about all that cost. You can read, you can learn. There's tons of free information online. You can listen to shows like this. But you probably can't really build up a true uh, homestead mentality or long-term survival mentality with stuff until you get off the economic knife edge. Um, another one I get, though, for people that usually aren't on the economic knife edge is how much land do you need to produce 100% of your own food? And my response to most of these people is, are you a farmer and rancher? Right? Do you know how to farm and ranch? So do you know how to raise livestock and, uh, and, and plant life? And they usually go, no. And I go, okay, I, I can tell. And they go, how can you tell? I said, because you asked that question. And they go, well, I guess they would know. And I said, no, they wouldn't ask a question because they know the answer is likely there isn't an answer. The, the answer is likely there isn't an answer. It's almost impossible for a single person or even a very small family to manage any amount of land to a point where they're going to provide 100% of what they need. It's almost inevitable that there'll be some sort of inputs from off-site. Now, maybe they can get very, very far along that way, and they can almost feel as though they're not taking in anything from an outside source. But the reality is, you're, you're one person. And if I give you as one person a 100 acres, you can only do so much with it on a daily basis. So the answer, the question shouldn't be, how much land do I need to produce 100% of my own food? It should be how much land can I reasonably manage toward the goal of producing as much of my food as possible. And an answer for most people, unless you get really, really deep into permaculture and landscape design and long-term thinking and designing you know, some portion of the land to almost be completely untouched and be a very passive harvest-only system, uh, it, it's probably in the neighborhood of about five acres. And anything beyond that, most people are probably wasting. Now, I don't think that that, doesn't, that means you, you should stop at five acres if you have a bigger dream for more land. I'm not going to. You know, If we start looking at putting water on the land with ponds and things like that and bringing aquaculture into it and stuff, we can get a lot closer to that, that sustainability standpoint of, of looking after ourselves. We're probably still not going to be 100%, but we're a lot closer. And I think that the problem is when people ask that question, and they say they want to produce 100% of their own food, they see it as a gardening question. They see it as a garden. That's what they're actually saying. How big a garden do I need? Produce enough vegetables and stuff so that I can feed myself. And it's very difficult to do that without a protein source. So now we got to look at chickens. You know, we got to look at maybe goats for dairy and for meat. We can maybe look at some pigs. And the reality is when we start doing that, it's usually easier for the small homesteader to find a local guy that, that raises pigs. That's his gig. That's what he does. And buy, you know, you know, piglets when they're big enough to be separated from their mother and raise a couple pigs a year that way. So now we've got to start looking at community. So what we really want to know is how big does a community have to be to be self-sufficient? And the answer is fairly large. And we don't really know what that number is. And I think, though, that we could probably put together a community of 20 or 40 families, and if they each had about an acre or two, and then we were commonly managing 40 to 80 acres, that community could be very, very resilient. But I still don't think it would be 100% self-sufficient, but I don't think that it needs to be. Collapse or no collapse, I don't think it needs to be. 
if you're in a, a, a economic collapse society or some other major catastrophe has collapsed the infrastructure, there's still going to be commerce between groups. And the better organized you are, the more resources you have, etc., the more valuable you are. And so I think we need to be thinking far more on a community aspect than most survivalists do. Without the community, there isn't anything worth surviving for. What are you going to do? Get a buck or stock it up for two years worth of food and go live in the hole in the ground in the dark for two years and come out and find out whatever you thought was going on? I mean, there's, there's, a, there's a reasonable level of security and concern. And yes, there's a time to get out of Dodge and go into a very remote location, but it's not something you're going to do sustainably, completely independently for serious long-duration times. These are temporary solutions to get out of the way until things get somewhat cracked down on and cleaned up. So I don't even think we should be thinking about 100% of our own food off of our land. What we should be thinking about is how much land can I effectively manage and what makes sense for me based on my goals, desires, and needs. Um, the next one I get a lot is, how do you test your preps? But it's almost never said that way. What people actually say is, how do I know if I've done enough? And that's, see, that's what they're really asking. How do I test it? But if they, if they knew how to ask the question, they would, they would find their own answer, and that is you just test it. You know, I've talked to people about doing big drills, like load everything up that you think you're going to need and, and, and go away for a weekend and, Camp out with it and, and things like that. And I think that's a great thing to do. Or go shut the power off to your house and, and, and do it for 12 hours and see what you're missing, what you don't have. You'll real quickly figure out, you know, that the well pump you have, if you have a well instead of city water, doesn't work just because the power went out. So what you, what was a self-sufficiency thing, a well, actually is a greater dependency thing on the grid. And you might have to shore that up in some way. And then you start looking to generators and things like that. I'll hold off on a generator for a while. But it, it, the, the biggest thing we can do is just to test things. And we don't have to necessarily make ourselves or our, our kids or our wives or husbands very, very uncomfortable to do this. Like I said, the mental scenario thing is huge. Just quieting everything in the house and saying to myself, self, if I'm stuck here, what, what, would, you, what would I do next? How would I look after things? The well's not running. How am I going to water the garden? How long can the garden go without being watered? And all of a sudden you start thinking, what I need to do is create some kind of redundancy in my irrigation system. And it gives you a whole, I, you know, whole list of things to do. And that's good and bad. It's bad in a way because you can become quickly overwhelmed. But it's good because you get to address these things now. And as soon as you come up with this list, what you need to do is actually write it down and start putting it in a list of priorities. What's, what's the biggest priority? And often the biggest priority is security. It's where I find people the most lacking. Well, I've got a gun. Well, where is it? It's in my gun safe. Okay, how long does it take you to get your gun safe, your gun out of your gun safe? Yeah, and they tell you, is it, is it loaded, or at least is there a magazine in it where, you, you know, well, I don't keep it loaded. So how long does it take you to go, and then you say, okay, uh, I'm a guy that wants to come in here and kill you. How long do you think it takes me to come through your front door or through your window and kill you? And they say, well, I keep the door locked all the time. And I say, do you think a guy that wants to kill you is concerned with breaking your window? And they say, no. And I say, you see your window? You see how close your window is to your door? I can be through your door by busting a hole through your window, reaching in and unlatching the door, 
and I could be in your, your door in about five seconds. And I bet you that's longer it takes than to go get your gun. You know, and well, I would fight back. Well, what if I've got a gun and you don't? What if I got a club? What if there's five of me instead of one of me? And little things, right? So you go, okay, well, now I need a huge security system and all. Well, it's hard to come through a window, especially if you plant things in front of the window that make it uncomfortable and hard to get into. <clears throat> and simple, cheap things like additional lock, you know, like latches and chain locks and stuff on your door, that's not going to solve the problem, trust me, but it will buy time. So there's little adjustments that can be made as well. You know, adding a dog to the house and things like that. But security is a big thing I see lacking. Um, you know, people say, well, I have food stored up for a month. Okay, fine. Tell you what. Uh, make your grocery bill for next week, uh, replacing whatever you eat, because you're going to eat anyway. Live off your preps for a week. Live off, instead of going to the store, and, and, and live off your preps for a week. And quickly you'll find certain things you're, you're kind of lacking in flavor, lacking in taste. Uh, and I don't mean go into the freezer and take out your, your T-bone and, and let it thaw out. No, live off your preps for a week like the, the, free, the freezer's been off for two weeks. You've eaten everything that was in there to keep it from going bad. And, and now all you have are your preps. And uh, I like these little experiments better than true, like, you know, real-world drills where we shut the power off and we do have to eat everything out of the refrigerator. Because the problem is by the time you get to the end of that drill you're really not prepared very well at all. You have to go restock everything. You've depleted all your immediate resources. And odds are, you're only going to run the drill long enough to deplete the immediate resources you would have anyway, and you're never even going to get to the point of using the things that are there for the redundancy. So just for a week or two days, live off of your preps. All non-perishable items. And cook it without your stove, unless your stove's on propane and your propane tank is on your property, right? And even then you might want to say, well, what if I didn't have that? 48 hours of that will teach you a lot. So that will start to tell you if you've done enough. And the real answer is we can always do something else. We can always do something more. Um, but we shouldn't stress over it either. There is a point where you feel relatively secure and you just keep tweaking, and it becomes a lifestyle, not something you do and shelve and put away. I think that a lot of people buying the long-term storage food, that's their philosophy. I'm going to go out and I'm going to buy a couple pallets of this crap. I'm going to stick it down in the basement or in the safe room or whatever, and now I'm done. And they've never opened a can of it. They've never used it. They don't know how to cook it. They have no idea what they would do. And I, I would say at least they've done something, and at least they've taken care of that one need, but they're probably very, very exposed. They're very exposed to the first, the first street gang that decides there's people in that house and I want what they have. They're, they're very exposed to the fact that they may not have what they need to prepare the food. They may be very exposed to the fact that, that some of the food may be completely disagreeable digestively with members of their family. They're very exposed in that their three-year-old daughter may just refuse to eat it. And you say if she's hungry enough, she'll eat. Yeah, but do you really want to deal with that in the middle of a crisis? Even if it's just a citywide blackout due to a hurricane or a tornado or something. right? And that's all you have left. Wouldn't you like to know that at least you have things in place that you can comfort your family with? These are things that we need to think about when we answer that question. The next one I get is, how much food should I store? My simple answer to that is that I believe that every American should make it their goal to eventually get to a point of a minimum of 90 days of food self-sufficiency. 90 days. I think that the, the better goal, the goal that I personally try to stick with and stay at myself is a year. And I think a year is doable 
And it's not as easy as a lot of people think it is unless you go the nuclear route. If you go the flat out, I'm just going to buy enough mountain house and MREs and everything else. As long as you have the money, you can do that. But if you're trying to do it in a way that makes sense where the food actually gets used and rotated, it's more of a challenge than a lot of people realize. And you will end up having to bring in the mountain house, providing pantry, MREs, etc. You, you got no choice. You got to do it. And you'll have to bring in some of the bulk, cheap storables like wheat uh, and rice and corn and things like that. It, it's really the only way to get to that duration, especially when you're looking at a family of four or more. And if it's what I personally practice, you might wonder then why I answer the question with 90 days. I'm trying to get America prepared to deal with the 99% of disasters that are most likely, not the 1% that are actually probably one-tenth of one-hundredth of 1% that we're going to deal with. Even an economic collapse, you're likely to do very well in dealing with the shift that comes with it if you can 100% look after yourself for 90 days because the, the, the reality is you're probably not going to have to to 100% be self-sufficient for those 90 days. It might be a position that you're in, and this is what this is what people don't get. This is where people get hurt in these disasters. They don't need 100% self-sufficiency. What they actually end up needing is 10, 20, 30% self-sufficiency, which doesn't sound that bad until you don't have it. In other words, we can look at it from just an economic self-sufficiency standpoint. Let's say that I went into the average American family that has an income between mom and dad of $120,000 a year. Both parents make roughly sixty grand, And I walk in there and take 40% of their income away. Uh, one side, mom made less or, or dad made less and they lost their job and they were 40% of the income. Uh, that gets replaced by unemployment, but the unemployment is not sufficient. And one way or another, I just take 40% of the income out of these people's lives. Most of them would be in danger of foreclosure within 60 to 90 days. Because that's about how many payments you have to miss before you start getting the really nasty notices from the bank, etc. Most of them would be behind on their credit cards, have trouble paying the electric bill. A lot of the things that the family used to do, they wouldn't be doing just from taking 40% away. But, right, this is where people say, we'll have a 90-day emergency fund, 90 days of your income put away. If you have 90 days of your income put away, so 100% for 90 days, and then you have a 40% reduction of your income, and I'm only pulling 40% of the 90 days out, it doesn't take a math genius to figure out how long it's going to last for me that way. And here's how we do that math. If it would take me 90 days, if I'm only pulling 40% out of it, and I double it, that means I've drawn down 80% of the reserve. So I go from 90 days to 180 days by pulling out 80% of my reserves when I had enough for 100%. Make sense? And then I have 20%, which is half of the original. So we take 90, we divide that in half, we get 45 days. We add the 45 days back onto the 180, we get 225 days. So a 90% income reserve of your total income would take you with no sacrifice, without giving anything up, 225 days through a crisis, giving you the time to recoup the 40% back. If, guess what, folks? Everything else works the same way. If you have 90 days worth of food and you have a 40% reduction in resources and you can only afford 60% of what you used to buy, even with no sacrifice in your caloric intake, you can go 225 days. 
if we start rationing things and cutting back and figuring out how to adapt and don't try to pretend nothing's wrong, we could probably take that 90-day food supply with a 40% reduction in, in outside resources and use it with what's still available to get us through close to a year. So that's one reason I back it down to 90 days. Uh, the second reason, it's much more doable for the average person. They can see themselves getting there. They'll probably get to six months. Once they get to 90 days, they'll feel really good about it. They'll come up with a system. They won't feel overwhelmed. Number three, I can do 90 days of self-sufficiency with food using probably 80 to 90 percent non-long-term storables. I, you know, or long-term storables that are available at the grocery store, so to speak. I can do it, eat what you store and store what you eat for 90 days. No problem. I might bring a couple weeks of long-term storage food in just to buffer the situation a little bit. So that's another reason, because people can get it done. And it also gets people into the right frame of mind. I want to be able not to survive necessarily when there's nothing, but I want to be able to compensate for what's lost. Because generally there is something 99.9% of the time. There is the one-tenth of percent of off the end. I do think that's worth preparing for. But getting prepared for the 99.9 first is on the way to the one-tenth of one percent. If that makes sense. Um, the next one I get is, what do you think will happen where I live? What, what, if there is an economic collapse, what's going to happen where I live? And this usually comes from people that are urbanites or suburbanites. right? They live in a city or a big town. And the answer is always, it's not going to be good. It's, it's, it's not going to, especially in the first couple weeks. You know, until the jackbooted thugs really start cracking some skulls and laying down the law. It's not going to be good. And those jackbooted thugs work for you and against you. Because you might decide you want to leave, and if you wait too long, they might not let you leave. Especially when arteries and uh, you know main traffic arteries and all get clogged up. Uh, but that's the worst-case scenario. The, 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 the reality is, well, what's it going to be like where you live when what happens? Right? They say, when it happens. And I know right there i got a guy on a ledge. i got to pull him back. Because they, they don't even know what it is. They just see it as being this end-of-the-world thing. They've watched one too, too many episodes of Doomsday Preppers or something, and, and they're just worried about the apocalypse. But the, the simple answer is we know what happens when a society collapses or when systems of support collapse. There's about 10% of the population that are complete, utter scum. And that 10% exists in every profession, in the world, there's 10% of school teachers that are absolute scum. There are 10% of soldiers that are absolute scum. There are 10% of priests that are absolute scum. There's probably a higher percentage of people like politicians that are scum, but there's about 10% of society is scum. About 1% of the scum behave like scum on a regular basis. The other 9% of the scum are held back from acting like scum because of fear that one, they're cowards, and the guy that you go steal from might shoot you or beat your ass, and two, from authority. If we remove authority from the equation and put society into a point that the person that used to be strong is perceived as being weak because he doesn't have the authority to back him up, that 9% of the scum surfaces really, really quickly. Then there's another 10%, so now we're up to 20% of society, that are almost scum. They really have a scum tendency to them, but they don't want to be scum. They know that being scum is wrong, and they hold themselves back 
partly due to fear, partly due to authority, but partly due to the decency and morality that is in them, even though they're on the edge of being scum. That scum-like group, that is what you would call your potential scum. And the more success the 10% have at acting like scum in a down situation, the more of that other 10% will gravitate towards and feel emboldened by, empowered by, and protected by the true scum. That's about 20% of society that has the potential to completely behave like scum before they have to. Not because, because I'm telling you that a man will steal, kick, and beat, and maybe kill another man for his bread before he'll let his, his son starve. It takes almost unhuman-like characteristics to stand by and not act like that when you absolutely have no alternative at all. Right, So there's a point where society begins to behave that way anyway. But this 20% segment does it based on opportunity and, and, and how much likely success with this behavior is and because they have a predisposition for it. That means that if you live in a city with a million people in it, you got about 200,000 people that make up that group. And it means you got about 100,000 people that are absolute scum, absolute scum, held back only by conditions. And those 100,000 people are a problem for the 900,000. And that secondary group, and these aren't hard numbers, these are estimates based on what I've seen happen. That other 10%, when, when they're in a disadvantaged situation, it becomes very easy for them to walk around behind the 10% scum and join that group. That's 200,000 people in a city of a million people that have that potential. I know that seems like way more, but or way more than makes sense, but it's what we've seen in societies. And it doesn't mean they'll all go out and do it right away. It just means that's what's potentially a potential in kinetic energy, right? There's a potential scum that have the potential to become kinetic scum. And the more things fall apart, the more kinetic the scum become. So, it's a very easy equation to look around your neighborhood and go, if there's a thousand people in this neighborhood, about a hundred of them are probably scum. And scum comes in varying degrees. There's absolute maggot scum, right? And then there's scum that's like, you know, like the scum that day to day is an alright guy, but if you put him in just a little bit of a different situation, the scum comes out. If it's opportunity, it's the guy that, you know, he never seems like he steals anything, but boy, if there was 10 grand sitting on a table and he thought he could get away with it, he's going to take it, right? That group of people is very, very dangerous. And the more desperate the situation becomes, the more dangerous they become. So what it's going to be like wherever you live is all dependent on how much of that falls apart and how much of those scum act. But when they start acting, it, it always leads to the same thing. It's riots, it's crime, it's beatings. It's kidnappings. That's what it's going to be like if it falls apart that far. And the number is going to be directly proportionate to the number of people that are to do it. Now, this goes two ways. Because I'm going to get to the next question in a second. It kind of goes the other side of this. And it, 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 people say, well, uh, that, that, but what about the people that are here? And that's the key. The one advantage you have in the large areas, if you can pull together that 800,000, you can make conditions very non-conducive for the 200,000 scum. You can make it so non-conducive that your 10% of potential scum go, I don't want to do this. Right? They're still dangerous. They'll still break in your house, steal something out of your house when you're not home. But they don't become 
highly dangerous, highly active mob-like scum. And then the 10% of, of people that are just waiting for the opportunity, a lot of times they would choose to go somewhere else rather than a well-fortified area. So numbers work for and against you there. Because the next question I get often, not from the same person, but I often, often get this question, don't you think it's going to be 100% safe where I live because I'm up on this mountain or I'm out in this valley or I'm in this field or I'm way out in the farmlands or whatever? And the answer is it'll be better, but it can be more dangerous. If I want to come steal from somebody, And I just want whatever I can get because I'm a desperate person. Do I want to break into a house surrounded by 30 other houses with dogs and people and neighborhood watches and cops patrolling and, and all this other stuff? Even in a breakdown, there's going to be some police. There's going to be more probably in some areas. Or if I can get away with it, would I rather just go out on a, in a rural area, scope the place out, scout it, figure out how many people are there, and since I'm scum... You know, pull out a Bushmaster or something like that. And once I've got a body, a head count, wait till I get that head count in one location, snipe them and walk in and take whatever I want. Which one's easier to do? See, a lot of, like in Argentina, Fernando was on, he was talking about how these abductions and kidnappings, people just go in and snatch somebody and they extort the family for whatever they can get out of them. They do something like cut the tip of their finger off or an ear off and they send it to them to prove they're serious. And sometimes the people pay whatever they can, and they still kill them. Well, it's easier for me to snatch you in the middle of the suburbs where people are watching or out of remote area. So the remote areas initially, far better. And the, the, what that means is in most situations, they're going to be safe because the situation itself is relatively short term. Even you know three months of rioting is very short term. In many ways. And it, the, the, the cancer, the scum cancer, will spread from these urban and suburban centers. And it takes some time to get out there. But if it's a long-term thing, like they have in Argentina, they're still not recovered from this. And it's been a decade now. Then those urban areas can also become hotspots for things like kidnapping. So it's not that it's 100% safe. And you can never feel 100% safe because you're not 100% safe right now. You're not going to be 100% safe when you're driving home. So we have to look at balance and make these choices based on what we're most comfortable with making our castle and our point of defense. For me, it's an urban, I mean, for me, it's a, it's a rural area. For you, maybe it's a suburban area. I think you're crazy if you feel that way. But if you really do, then you've got to make the best of it. You've got to organize your community, right? You've got to do real community organizing. It's just the only way that you're going to be able to hold things together if stuff gets pretty bad. Um, The next one I get is, how do I get my wife, husband, brother, uncle, cousin, sister's former roommate, whatever, fill in the blank, uh, to understand this stuff? And the answer in many cases is you don't. You don't. You can't. How do you get your parents? You, you, don't. Don't even bother mom and dad. Right? You, if you are a child, you have what Dave Ramsey, when you talk to your parents, called it's called powdered butt syndrome. And that means no matter how smart your kids are, when they start talking to you about money and living and stuff like that, parents have a very hard time accepting that their kid could possibly know more than they do because at one time they powdered their butt and changed their diaper. And it's very hard to take financial advice and lifestyle advice from a person whose, whose butt you wiped and whose diaper you changed. Very, very difficult thing for a human. Some people can do it. Right, Most parents can take advice from their kids on things like a computer or a, a digital camera, but they will really struggle with financial advice. 
The kid went to Harvard, and he's an investment advisor, and he's really, really good at his job, and he's making millions of dollars, maybe then, right? And that's what it usually takes to make a parent truly open to their child advising them on money. When it comes to things like this, it's even more than your parents. All you can do is be prepared to help them out the best you can in a situation. Most other people, though, you can reach a little bit at a time. And the thing is that my biggest way that I reach people is to simply ask them questions like, what would you do if? And then whatever they say, I go, oh, okay, do you think that would be enough? Followed by, are you sure? And I leave it. You plant seeds with this stuff. That's one way. The other thing is, don't try to convince anybody. People get in this, it's like a political thing, you know. I'm going to convince you you need to vote for Mitt Romney. I'm going to convince you you need to vote for Barack Obama. Or if it's me, I'm going to say I'm going to convince you that, that you need to just realize that they're both idiots and neither one of them is any good for the country, right? But we can't have that conversation for anything more than a couple minutes before it becomes boring because it's just two people entrenched in their situation. And in that situation, the harder I push, the more in your trench that you'll go. Okay, uh, and, and this is what happens when people try. I got to get my brother, man. My brother, he's just totally unprepared. He, he's all in his debt, I, I, and you push. Well, he's chosen to be where he is. You're trying to pull him out of that. So what's he do? He digs in. If if you and I met for the first time, and I said I want to try an experiment. You trusted me enough to try this experiment, and I said I want you to stand up, and I want you to put your right hand up like you're going to swear on the Bible, right? Put your hand up in front of you, and I said, okay, now here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to put my hand on your hand and push. You say, okay, and I go to do that. What do you think you're going to do? 99, I've only had one person, and I think they lied to me and they had seen this little experiment done before, but they said they hadn't. Uh, but one person out of probably hundreds, because I use this in business consulting and all as well, I would push, the immediate response they have is to either try to hold you, and as soon as they try to hold you and that doesn't work, they start pushing back. And I'll, and I'll say, did I ask you to push back? And they'll say, no. Did I ask you to resist? No. And you say, why did you do it? And they say, it just seems like what I should have done. There you go. That's your whole answer. So you don't convince people of this stuff. You plant seeds, you talk to them, and you be a shining example of what it does in your life. Because if you practice these things, what it leads to is a very self-sufficient, self-reliant, happy lifestyle, a very healthy lifestyle, and a very stress-free lifestyle, and a lifestyle that is unencumbered by fear and stress. And if you do it right for long enough, it leads to early frickin' retirement, right? Or partial retirement, which is probably a much more fulfilling life for somebody in their 50s than full retirement. Next one, what do I do if I got to get the hell out of here and I got no place to go? Well, the answer is try to find a place to go. Um, you know, if all else fails, yeah, I guess a tent and a sleeping bag and some food and, and being to pack up and leave is better than nothing. You know, I would not want that to be my first choice, but it, it is a choice, especially if it's a short-term situation. If it's a city evacuation because of some kind of toxic spill or something like that, and they're going to clean it up and you're going to go back, then that type of bugging out actually can work. It's not great, it's not good, but it probably beats a FEMA camp, right? Um, if it's long-term, that's like the people that think they're going to go bug out to the wilderness or whatever, that, you know, If you're Cody Lundeen or Dave Canterbury or Bear Grylls or somebody like that, you might pull, and I use the term might pull that off, right? If you, you know, uh, Tom Brown or something, maybe, you know, I mean, even people like that, they can do it, but they sure don't want to be there 100% of the time forever. 
That's if they did, they would be there now. They would, you know, they wouldn't just run schools and courses uh, and go out and and, and 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 do experiments. They would go out there, stay out there, and never come back if that's where they wanted to be. So, so that plan's not good. So, what we need to start out with is looking to, to first the relatives and trying to find relatives that are at least thinking this way and having a, an agreement with somebody that's at least a couple towns away and hopefully a couple states away, if something went wrong, I would like the ability to come to you and I want to offer you the ability to come to me. That's that's one easy way to do this. Probably the cheapest way to reasonably be able to take care of yourself, and this is not for the total breakdown, but for, for one, one reason or another, you've been ejected from your domicile, and you, you still want to work and you still want, maybe not, maybe your job's gone, but you want to go find a job somewhere. You want to be able to take a shower, right? You want to be able to cook your food. You want to be protected from the elements. It's probably a low cost RV. Something in the neighborhood of four to six thousand dollars. And, uh, that's about as cheap as you can do a decent one. And then you need a vehicle capable of towing it. You don't need a vehicle capable of towing it all over the place for camping and recreation, but it's got to be able to at least get it from where it is to a place that you can put it for a while. And um, so you got to look at the vehicle side of things. And it makes sense, even if you have a house, you could put it at your house. It probably makes sense to not put it at your house. It probably makes sense to look at finding a place you can store it for 50 to 70 bucks a month and just consider it an expense and store it off-site so that if, like, there's a huge flood and it destroys your house, it doesn't also destroy your secondary fallback location. So that's another option that you can take. Short-term, knowing things like, Ten hotels, four hours away from you, in all directions, and having them on you know set up in your documentation package, so that the second you know you need to leave, you can call and make a reservation. I know that doesn't sound very survivally, but it, you know, twenty minutes later, when all of those hotels have already been filled up, it looks quite prepared, doesn't it? So there's all these degrees when it comes to leaving. The big thing, though, that I often have to talk to people about with this, though, is should you be leaving in the first place? How do you know when you should leave? And they go, well, when it happens, and we're back to that cliff edge again. And the reality is there is an answer. There's an absolute hard and fast answer as to when you leave your home. When your odds of surviving increase because you've left, or you're in a situation where you know that will soon be the case, then you leave. If your odds of surviving are higher where you're at, you stay there. If they're higher somewhere else, you go there. you got to get the mentality right as well. I'm going to move on from that one because we've done whole episodes on it, but that's the basics of how I respond to that. Um, next one I get, because people are on this independent thing, how big of a solar system do I need to provide all my own energy? And my response to that is, if you think you're going to live the way that you do now, that system does not exist. You cannot run an air conditioning unit for your 2,200 square foot, two-story house on solar energy. There's not enough roof. If you put solar panels on every square scrap inch of your roof, up and down your walls, and set up an array in your backyard, you're still not going to have the type of energy that you need to run your house the way that the average American does. You're not going to run your electric range off your solar panels, right? So the reality is that question doesn't have an answer because it isn't there. You don't build a solar system to replace 100% of your grid energy. You size your resources in a house powered by solar to match the system that you can afford. 
If you can put in 10 kilowatts of solar, you size things to, to, to be run off 10 kilowatts of solar. When you go to solar, you have to think about every single thing that you do. Solar will not really save you money. It may someday, but for right now, it won't save you money. It won't save the polar bears. It's not going to make the planet cooler. It's not going to do any of the magical fairy things that you've been promised. Solar panels, solar energy, wind, you know, small-scale wind energy at your house, anything you do to produce your own power that don't, doesn't use fossil fuels is not for saving the planet, and it's not for saving money. It is for being independent. That's what it gives you is independence. I have a much more uh, positive outlook on solar than Stephen Harris does. I don't think the photovoltaic panel is the worst thing to ever happen to energy. And I do think we can get to a point with higher efficiency, lower cost of construction, where solar can become much more viable economically, and I would love to see it happen. But in the current state, solar is for independence, and it will cost you a premium to produce your power, and yes, you'll produce cleaner power and more independent power, but it's going to cost more. And you probably can't afford a system uh, big enough to do what, everything that you want it to do, even when you accept some of the limitations. So you have to go much more reverse engineering with this. How much can I commit to this solar system? What will that do? And how do I set up my life so that if I have to depend on it 100%, because the other power sources are gone, that I can still get by. You have to reverse engineer that question. You can't forward look it. Um, the next one I get is, how long can a generator run my house for me? How big a generator, how much power do you use, and how much fuel do you have? Right? I mean, that's, that's the, the answer there. But the reality is, like one of these whole house, like 20K standby systems that runs on propane, it can probably run for about two weeks at half load on about a 500-gallon propane tank. So, I mean, you can go from there. And half load will probably do most of what people do every day. So if you live, uh, you know, maybe we do things like we don't turn the stove on when the uh, somebody's taking a shower. So we're trying to, you know, we, we, we could, but we're not pushing that, the load heavy, and we're not going to actually go beyond the capabilities. We make a few adjustments, but pretty much we take hot showers for 10 minutes, and we cook our food on the electric range and things like that. Uh, that's probably what you're going to get out of a 20K system in the average home. You're running your air conditioner full tilt in the middle of summer. It's not going to last as long. You're going to be pushing beyond that 50% load, which isn't good for the generator. So it all depends, but that's pretty much what you're looking at. Now, we have a 1,000-gallon propane tank. The power's down. We could go four weeks that way, but we realize that we're in a critical situation. We do things like close off some of the rooms in the house if it's, it's you know, for, for as far as cooling. Maybe we even put things over the vents to absolutely seal them off. We keep the drapes closed. We run the air conditioner a little higher than normal, but we keep ourselves relatively comfortable, right? We cook on the grill outside so that we use the propane instead of the, 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 the stove inside. Even if we have propane or, or natural gas to our, to our stove in the house, we cook outside because then we don't have to worry about the heat. If it's the other way around and we have gas power for the stove, and it's cold out, then we cook inside. We start to make these adjustments. Maybe we can go two months. Maybe we can go three months. Maybe we can go four months. How much do you want to ration? But if you think in any way that you're going to put in a, a generator system even to your home, and you're going to run infinitely, 
nonstop with business as usual and make it a year or more, it's not going to happen. You know, what are you going to put in me? 2,000 gallons of, of gas is about as much as you, you, you could do. Now, if you are using grid gas, natural gas from you know, pipes to your home, uh, you can go pretty much as long as that generator runs. You're going to make a big gas bill, but you can do it. And in a infrastructure failure system, the gas pipelines would be one of the very last things to go down. So it's pretty daggone resilient. Uh, again, you'll have a big gas bill, but yeah, you can go pretty, pretty, pretty far. If you want to be standalone though, uh, you know, maybe you're looking two, three months with some rationing, unless you go extreme with the, uh, with the propane and what have you. But think about it again from the original question about how much food do I store? If you're going through a situation where we have these brownouts and rolling blackouts and things like that, the grid's going down for two or three days and then coming back up and you only need some percentage, then the solar, the generators, all that stuff really helps out. And in a lot of situations, collapse situations, everything doesn't go away. Things don't work as good as they used to. So they become very, very beneficial there. When there's an ice storm, Right, and you're 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 out of power for a week or three, like happened to folks just a couple of years ago up in northern Arkansas and Tennessee and Kentucky and what have you. Then those things are very very beneficial, and that's the more likely disaster. So it's just thinking a little bit differently. Um, next one: If I have lots of gold and silver, won't that make me rich if the economy collapses? You want an answer to that? Pull out a quarter, pick heads or tails, flip it ten times. Heads you win, tails you lose. There you go. I mean, that's how that works. It doesn't. It's not cut and dry. I had. I, I talked to my father for the first time in a long time last night. I asked him if he's holding any uh, precious metals. He said no. So I'm just stockpiling cash. I'm like, dude, man, you you know better than that. He's like, you know, well, he was talking about how you could end up in a deflationary economy. I'm like, Dad, you're absolutely right. You're ah, powdered butt syndrome, right? How much do you get through to your father? Uh, you know, so you're absolutely right. But you're, you're, you're relying on the quarter to land on heads. What if it lands on tails? What if we end up in an inflationary economy? Um, and then there's times where gold and silver don't really make you rich in these collapses. They keep you at par. They're insurance, right? But when you collect the insurance, you're usually not happy about it. Think of it this way. You carry $20,000 worth of insurance on a $20,000 car. If you, that car is damaged beyond repair and, and you're physically okay, and you get a $20,000 check from the insurance company, are you rich? No, because you don't have a car anymore. So you have to take the money to go buy a new car. Many times in these economic collapses, people that hold metals simply insure their wealth. They don't become wealthy. Especially if we look at it this way. If you have about 10% of your money in gold and silver, and you've lost the 90, if the 10% it becomes worth 10 times what it was, where are you? Back where you started. You're sure as hell a lot better off than everybody else though, right? The reality is in most economic collapses, for a time cash is king and then commodities take over and many times there's a seesawing effect. Right now in Argentina, one day gold and silver is what you got to have. People pull gold chains off their neck, cut a link to buy something. Fernando said he's seen it. People lay a chain down and ask somebody for something they want. How many links? And the guy says three. He pulls a knife out and cuts the link by smacking it with the back of his hand and hands him the three links. Two weeks later, everybody wants money. It's weird, but it's the way it is. It's about the ebb and flow of things. How much cash is available? How much gold and silver is available? What kind of economy exists? 
So, no, buying gold and silver is not likely to make you rich in a collapse. There is a chance, but there's a chance you'll win a lottery if you play to pick six every day, too. You know, there's a chance you'll win 25 grand if you get scratch off lottery tickets. But I don't buy a lot of them. So, to me, gold and silver are more about insurance. If it makes you rich, great. We'll all celebrate together because I'll be rich, too. But I'm not planning on it. I'm not betting on it. And this is my big problem with it. The people that think this way, that is how they prepare. They take all of their extra money, buy gold and silver, lock it in a box somewhere, and say, when everything falls apart, I'll be just fine. You can't eat gold and silver, folks. It's a component of what you do. It's the, doing that is like buying a gun with no bullets and no training. You don't even know how it works and never taken out of the box. It could be useful, but it probably won't be when you need it. Whatever you need it for, it won't be capable of doing that with no ammo in the box. Somebody might come along one day and go, that's a really nice gun, that's a collectible, and you, you hit a home run when you bought that, it's never even been out of the box. I'll give you $10,000 for that gun. But it's more likely that you'll need it to put food on the table or protect your family. So you have to take that mentality with everything you do, not just gold and silver. Uh, the next one, what kind of gun should I get and how much ammo is enough, etc. Uh, if you don't know what you're doing with a gun, the first thing you should get is some training. You know, and as far as what kind of gun you, you should get, something with a reasonable rate of fire and a reasonable rate of lethality that you can handle well. I don't care if you carry a Springfield XD or a Glock or a 1911 uh, or, or what you carry. If you know how to use it, you know how to use it. If it's reliable, it's reliable. Nobody gets shot and goes, thank you, may I have another? Right? It just doesn't exist. It doesn't happen. That's not the way things work. So I don't really care what kind of gun you have. Now, I do have some of my personal favorites. Home defense, shotgun. Short-barreled shotgun. Not necessarily tactical. It can be, but it doesn't have to be. You, go, you get a typical Remington 870 youth model, uh, you know, youth-sized uh, 12-gauge. Pull the stock off and put a full-length stock on it so it's more comfortable to shoot. 21-inch barrel. I mean, that. somebody comes through your door and they get lit up with that. They're done. It doesn't. It doesn't have to have a heat shield and, and all and a pistol grip and everything. A shotgun is a shotgun is a shotgun, and and number four or double O buck is number four or double O buck. And when they hit the human body, they do immense amounts of damage. So I, I like a shotgun for home defense. It's easy to teach somebody to use. The functionality is very very uniform across the board. If you know how to shoot a single shot shotgun, I can hand you any single shot shotgun, and you can figure it out. If you know how to shoot a pump, I can hand you any pump, and within a couple minutes, you'll figure it out. Semi-auto, same thing. Double barrel, same thing. So the functionality of shotguns is very easy. It's very intuitive. The weapons are very very reliable. They're easy to clear malfunctions, and they're very very lethal at home defense distances. So I love a shotgun for home defense. Uh, when it comes to rifles, I like the AR platform. A lot of people say, well, what about AKs? If you like AKs, get an AK. I don't care. It, it doesn't matter to me, right? You want an AR-10 because you want 308s? Get one. I don't, it, just, it all works, right? As long as it's capable of sustained fire and you can run the gun well, it's good enough. How much ammo? As much as you think you'll need and then more. <laughs> I, I don't have a number. It's like a 10,000 rounds or whatever. I mean, how much do you shoot? Right? If you, if people that are trying to stockpile ammo to the point where they have like 10,000 rounds of every caliber, to me, what do you think you're going to do? Fight World War III? Now, could there be barter value and everything? Yeah, no 1% disaster. Sure. Sure. But 
more than most people think they need is really the, the easy answer to that question. And, you know, it, it's in a neighbor. I mean, I'll put it to you this way. When it comes to things like, you know, 5.56, 2.23 stuff that we have for like the ARs and all, we have several thousand rounds minimum of that at any one time. You know, if, if, if I'm down to probably 5,000 rounds of that stuff, I, it probably means I just went and shot off a thousand rounds. You know, and maybe did it a time before that with some long-term practice sessions or something like that. So it's it's in the thousands of rounds, but you know, it doesn't cost that much money. It doesn't take that much space up, and it stores infinitely. Um, you know, when it comes to things like uh, handgun ammunition, you know, you do so much shooting. So I might keep a lot of forty fives, but that's because I practice with my forty five. Uh, now that I've bought a nineteen eleven uh, uh, frame. Uh, 22, I do a lot more practice with 22s uh, than I do 45, so I keep less 45 on hand. So it, it's probably not as much as the TV would make you think it should be, but it's probably more than the average person thinks that they should have, and you kind of come to that number on your own, uh, but you probably can't have too much, so, so go to the a little bit to the other side of what you think is enough. Um, next one, I want to put a group together. How do I find like-minded people to join me on my survival retreat? Good luck. Good luck. Uh, first of all, most people that think that way are, are, are so militant about the way they want things done, they're generally not very flexible with other people. Um, people that actually do that successfully generally just sort of find each other without trying. It's usually two guys, they get talking about it, they decide to do it, and as long as they do it in the same way, especially if they start putting a retreat together where they can go join up together during a disaster, um, and they do it in a way where they both feel like they're they're getting what they want out of the deal. Um, then when there's two, it's easier to get three or four or five or six because there's already a group, right? When it's just you and you're asking some person that you just met on the internet if they want to put together a survivalist group, it's it's not likely. The person that's most bent toward doing it probably thinks you're from the ATF or something. Right, and they're you know you're trying they're trying to scam them or something like that, or maybe they think that maybe you need to talk to the ATU because maybe you're a little too out there. The the way that we put together groups is no, we don't go look for survivalist groups. We build community, and groups form to fill certain functions. So if you want to meet like-minded people, go places where people do the things you like to do. Go to shoots like IDPA. You'll meet you'll meet gun people. Right? Go camping. You'll meet outdoorsy types. Go hiking. You'll meet people that hike. Find a rod and gun club and go hang out there. You'll find people that fish and hunt. Right? Get involved with a garden group. Get involved with a permaculture group. Find people that are already doing these things. Go to community gardens. Go to farmers markets. Talk to people. Open your mouth a little bit and your ears a lot. You know, it's 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 really a much more productive thing because instead of having a group, now you have an extended community. Maybe an intergroup forms. But then you see, I think more like a salesperson because I did that for so many years. When I met, made contacts as a salesperson, sure I wanted the purchasing manager at Alcatel because that's the guy that cuts the freaking PO for a half a million dollars worth of hardware. You know, and eventually I get to that guy. But I want to meet everybody because everybody knows somebody. Now I don't do it in a parasitic way. I want to meet people that I like. That I like to. I want business contacts in the business world that I can call up a guy and go, "Hey Joe, you want to grab a beer tonight?" And I actually want to go have a beer with Joe, not for what Joe can give me, but because I actually want to be with Joe. And sooner or later, Joe's going to know somebody, or I'm going to know somebody, 
that's going to help one or the other. And that person is going to know somebody. And the bigger our extended communities get, you start to build this huge, that's what a network is. It's not like a whole bunch of people connected to you. It's a small group of people connected to you, and it's a small group of people connected to them, and a small group of people connected to them, and that network branches out into thousands and thousands of contacts. And eventually that always leads towards success in a sales business. Well, it also leads to success from a standpoint of a community that can stand resilient in a hardship. And eventually the natural nucleus of your group forms around people that are like-minded. And it's not like-minded because I want to be a prepper. They're like-minded because you like being with them. So when you say, how do I find like-minded people to put together a survival group, what you're really saying is, how do I find good friends? And the answer to that question has been the same since it was asked the first time. Go out and be yourself and go places where people like you exist. Be nice to people. That's how you, you find like-minded people. Go do the stuff that you consider fun. Other people will be there doing that and make friends. That's how you do that. Uh, the next one, why do you tell people about what you do? Isn't that a mistake? When they hear, oh, you're a survivalist, I, yeah, I kind of let that go because I don't want to get into the whole long explanation of modern survivalism versus TV survivalist and whatever. But it's, isn't that a mistake? And I say, you know, on some levels that it is. It really is. I think that everybody should be working in their community toward a prepared community. But if you have a year's worth of food in your basement, it's no need for your neighbor, unless he does too, and you've slowly gained trust with each other to tell them that. I, I completely agree. Um, because it does become, you become the easy answer for people. So a, a relatively uh, moderate level of operational security there is, is important. <laughs> I don't have any problem with the average person having neighbors know that, hey, I'm prepared to get by for a couple weeks. I think most people are prepared, even if they don't realize it, uh, they just never have thought about how they would do it, could get by for a few weeks. But you know, long-term stuff, should, should I, you know, should I be this public? And the answer is, I should be this public. I personally should. And the reason is, is because I'm a very good teacher. I am a very good teacher. I, I, I know that might sound arrogant to hear somebody talk about themselves that way, but I've been teaching one thing or another for my entire life. It's my apps. People say, is your passion, Jack, is your passion preparedness? And I say preparedness is a passion of mine. My passion, my it, my thing is teaching. And I love teaching. I feel like I'm walking my life's purpose when I'm teaching. And someone has to do it. And I can't teach preparedness Unless I'm prepared, because then you're teaching what you don't know, right? There's people I understand, all oh, these people in their survival part, these hardcore, they think that they were, you know, God created them as the first survivalist or something. I've seen some of these real assholes, and I know AR, AR15.com is a great site, and there's some great people over there, but you guys have a few real freaking asshole survivalist people over that I've seen comments from that just, you just roll your eyes and go, this guy's an idiot. You know, and, and they, 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 like only real preppers aren't survivalists. Only real survivalists are ready to fight. These people are complete morons and tools, right? They don't help anybody. They don't teach anybody. And odds are they're going to be one of the first people totally screwed in a real breakdown. Because when they stand up like with that lone wolf attitude, they're only going to get away with their predatory nonsense for a very short period of time. Because if your infantrymen over in Afghanistan get torn apart with all of the support they have, what are these groups around here going to be able to do without a, you know an 8,000-mile-long 8, supply line and total logistics support? For every infantryman in battle, 
there are at least 20 logistical people supporting him. It's a 20 to 1 ratio. And think about the hardships that our troops endure in combat zones. And then think about a place where a couple people like that think they're going to get away with it long term without a 20 to 1 support ratio. It's not very realistic. So that mentality doesn't work. But you know what does work? What works is putting fire suppressant on the building before it catches on fire. My goal is to make this country so resilient, so much ingrained with the culture of preparedness, that when something does go wrong, big time, and sooner or later it will, it may be in my lifetime, it may be down the road, it's probably far sooner than we want to accept with the economy, but when it does happen, I want as many people prepared to stand up and hold the line as possible. That's my goal, that's my mission. I can't do that without being public. If I was on the, if I got on the air every day and said, this is the masked prepper, and I, you can't know where I live, and you can't know what I do, and you can never see my face, and all you'll ever hear is my voice, and I'm hiding in the mountains of Idaho, and I'm telling you how to get prepared, you'd probably, one, figure I was full of shit, two, figure I was a complete loon, three, not do anything that I say, and four, ha I would have no credibility. If you want to find me, you can find me. If you want to have a beer with me, send me an email when you're in my area or I'm in your area and we'll try to do it. I can't always do it, but we'll try. I'm accessible, right? And I think that makes what I do far more effective. So for the average person, some level of operational security, very, very important. For me, I have to be public because I can't be a teacher if I'm not public. And if I can't be a teacher, I'm not fulfilling my purpose. So that, that's how I answer that question. And I do think that there's a lot of people right now jumping into this world, jumping into this preparedness niche because it's cool, because it's hot, because it's a money maker. And I think those people are going to have very short term shelf lives. You know, I don't think they're the, I don't think they're the 30 year uh, can of mountain house. I think they're the, the, uh, the foil packet of tuna and noodles that didn't taste real good the day you opened it. And I would just say to anybody out there that's, you know, getting into this world, that's, that's, that's getting into preparedness and self-sufficiency and self-reliance, that's heard this show today, take a lot of what I've said to heart. Um, we need you guys. I mean, I'm not opposed to commercialism. Come on, I have sponsors. They sell this stuff. But all of my sponsors are people that are actually preppers. You know what? If you go to, to, to you know Robert's place, the guy that runs Ready Made Resources, you go to his house, not his warehouse, his house. He lives the way that I do. You know, he has. It's not like he just relies on his his warehouse and says, "Well, if things get really bad, I'll just stop shipping stuff and keep it all." It doesn't. You know, it's, it's not that that way. This is a guy with a homestead that gardens and does all, it does all the things that we talk about. And all of these people that I'm associating myself with do that. I get requests for sponsorship sometimes from people, and I say, uh, "Not only do I not have any room, I wouldn't take you anyway." And they want to know why, and it's because you're only out to make a buck off of people. And there's nothing wrong with making a buck off of people, but you better be giving them value for that buck. And you better deliver more value to the customer than they spend in cash. That's the only way to be sustainable in a business. So when, I, when you hear me say stuff like this, and I feel like you might think I'm being negative to other business people in the industry, I'm not. We need lots of you, and we need some of you to be really, really good. Trust me, my ego is not that big that I think I can do this crap on my own. I know I can't. I'll have my group, and there'll be people that think I'm a flat loon. There'll be people that think I'm a flippin' asshole. 
And that's okay. I don't need to reach everybody. I just need to reach the people that understand things and see things the way that I do. But you guys that are getting into this, you can learn a lot from the practices that I've put into place. Integrity being 100%. Longevity, making that a tremendous goal. Not associating myself with anything. Not one damn thing will I associate myself with that makes preppers look like crazy people. I won't be associated with it on any level at any time ever. I will not lend my brand to anything or my name to anything that would harm the preparedness movement. Why would I have a vested interest in protecting it? I protect my audience. I protect my people. I protect my community. You know the old saying, this will defend? This is what I'll defend. It's why I'm public. And if you're going to get involved in this industry, I know I'm a little bit over time and off topic here, but if you're going to get involved in this industry, please do me a favor and give a shit about the people you serve. Right? It's okay to make, you can make money and you can give a shit about your customers at the same time. And if you don't do that, you have no business being successful. None. In any business, not just this industry. That's how important this stuff is to me. That's why I've made it my life work. Trust me, I could set up things where I don't have to get on the microphone every day. I know enough about internet marketing and drop shipping <laughs> that I could set up a system that would produce financial gain for me and I would only have to look at it once or twice a week. And I would be very bored and I wouldn't feel really good about what I'm doing. I love what I do now. I love what I do now because real people are attached to it. And to anybody that's out there that wants to be more prepared or wants to serve that industry, please remember, these are real people we're talking about with real concerns. And they deserve, they deserve to be taken care of. And that's why I want you to be prepared, tying this back into the individual. Your family deserves to be taken care of. And you deserve to take care of yourself so you can stand to take care of your family. Your community deserves to be taken care of. They need to stand up and do some of it on their own. I'm not talking about giving people a free ride here, but they deserve you to try to make a difference. And you owe it to yourself and you owe it to your family and to your friends and your community to try to make a difference in yourself and try to make a difference in your life and build up that resiliency and preparedness. And it's part of our heritage as Americans. And I know I got some international listeners, and it's pro, pro, more accurately, it's part of our heritage as people. If you go into any society and you trace it back far enough, you'll find a culture of preparedness. That's what this is really all about for me, is a culture of preparedness. And with that, this has been Jack Spierko with another episode of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I it's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way.
Revolution is you. 